Morning. <laughs> Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, and we'll read together up through verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen? There's a lot of different things that we praise God for in our lives. We praise him because we got a job. We praise him because we had a successful um, interview. We praise him because we have children, because we have food on our tables. Paul, in this passage, what he does is he describes to us what he praises God for. And it's a little bit different than the sorts of things that we often think to praise God for. Ephesians is probably my favorite book that Paul wrote, my favorite letter that Paul wrote. And there's a number of reasons for that. It's a little bit different than some of his other letters. To begin with, Ephesians is what we call a circular letter. And here's what that means. Paul wrote Ephesians initially to this city in Ephesus, to the church in the city of Ephesus, this center of commerce in Asia Minor, And then that letter would be read aloud to the churches who were there. They would hear Paul's words. And then the letter would be sent to other churches nearby, like the churches that were in Laodicea. And then they would hear the words of Paul read aloud to their congregations. And the second reason this letter is interesting is not just because it's a circular letter, but because it's a circular letter, it doesn't address specific issues in specific churches. It's not trying to solve a problem for a particular church. So it talks about all kinds of grand issues of theology and what Jesus did and what God did. So we hear things like this. We hear about faith in Jesus. We hear about union with Jesus. We hear about the unity of the church in Jesus. We hear about being defended against the evil one because of Jesus. We hear about families functioning faithfully like Jesus. And maybe you've Seeing the pattern over and over and over again, the unifying factor in the letter to the Ephesians is the name of Jesus Christ. Over and over again, Paul says there is no greater name 
So we've titled our series on Ephesians, No Greater Name. There's no greater name in heaven or on earth than the name of Jesus Christ. And the heartbeat of his whole letter and the heartbeat of this section is that name, the name of Jesus. Now, what are the circumstances under which Paul wrote this letter? You may know that Paul did a number of missionary journeys all over the Mediterranean. And after the third missionary journey, he goes back to Jerusalem. And while he's there, he gets accused of taking a Gentile, a non-Jew, into a portion of the temple precincts where Gentiles were not prohibited, were not permitted to go. So he gets arrested, and he gets passed from uh, an official to an official, to trial to trial, until because he's a Roman citizen, he gets sent to Rome. And while he's in Rome, he's put under house arrest, and he's chained to a guard, chained to a guard, and he can't leave for a few years. We think this might have been Paul's last imprisonment before he was executed. So Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus about these things in the final years of his life when he's inside a house. He can't go anywhere. Now there's a few things about the way he opens the letter that matter a great deal. The first is this. It's a form of praise. Paul is going to talk about who God is. He's going to talk about theology. He's going to get into the nitty gritty. He's going to bring up things that brilliant theologians still debate about He's going to talk about the deep things of God, but before he does that, he is going to empty his lungs in worship. He's going to sing until his chest hurts. He's going to talk about the spiritual contents of his heart. He's going to show people how much he loves his God and how much he praises his God, and that's so important because good worship leads to joyful theology, and good theology leads to joyful worship. They are connected. You cannot worship God well if you do not know God well. And you don't know God well if you don't worship him. So Paul begins his letter this way. And we know this. We can read in verse 1-3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I'm using the ESV here. That's the Bible that I always use. That's the translation that I always use. And you see repetition. Blessed, blessed, blessing. Paul's getting repetitive. If we look at the NIV, which some of you certainly have with you, we can read this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now both these translations are reliable and responsible. One of them, one of them is preserving the repetition of the words that Paul uses. The other one is more clearly in English describing what it is that Paul is doing. Praising God. So, it's a form of praise, this first 14 verses. It's also macrocosmic. Here's what I mean by that. I don't even know if that's a word. She's having to spell it out. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Macroscopic. Here's what Paul does. Paul is in a house in Rome chained to a guard. And he's talking to what we will call an amanuensis, someone who's copying down what he says. He's dictating his letter. So he's in this house. And as he begins to talk about the Lord and the blessings that the Lord has given to him, his mind races all the way back to before anything happened at all, before the foundations of the earth. Then he shoots forward and he plants his feet at the historical moment of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he says, there's blessings here. And then he shoots forward to the very end and he says, there's blessings there. The whole thing the whole story of God, is included in the praise that Paul offers him. We get what we call maybe the big picture of praise here. 
Another thing this letter is, another thing that this particular section of the letter is, is Trinitarian. Right away, we hear about God the Father, we hear about God the Son. We're going to hear about God the Spirit, even though he's implied throughout. We learn that it's God the Father who blesses us through the agency of God the Son and secured by God the Holy Spirit. This praise, this long set of praise, this long sentence of praise that Paul belts out, it's a lot like a Jewish barakah, except for immediately we see a distinctive Christian element. Jesus Christ is Lord. But throughout the entire 14 verses, over and over and over again, Paul forefronts the Son. He says something like, in Christ or in Him, referring to Christ, 11 times in 12 verses. He is forefronting the Son. And we're going to see that all throughout the letter. Because what we learn is this. The key to the book of Ephesians. The key to the book of Ephesians is that the church should find its new identity in Jesus Christ. There is no greater name. There is no greater name. Over and over again, Paul is going to convey to the people who are listening, Jesus Christ is the greatest name. And he belts out this praise as he does it. And it is 202 words of a single sentence in Greek. <laughs> if you're a seminary student, you don't want to translate it. You think you know Greek, and then you go to your first Ephesians class, and you're like, do this one. And you're like, oh, oh, it's just nonstop. It doesn't stop. In Greek, one long sentence. Just one sentence. In English, we divide it up because our English brains have to do that. Now, here's why I think this matters so much. Not because people who speak English are dumber. We just have a different language. <laughs> Paul is in Rome. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a guard who's probably not a believer. He's talking to an amanuensis, someone who's copying down his words, who probably is a believer. Now the guard knows that he's writing a letter. He has permission to write a letter. So Paul begins. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And the guard is like, yeah, that sounds like a letter. That's acceptable. You can do that. And then he continues. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And the guard is like, that's a little more religious, but I guess that's okay. He can write that in a letter. Paul continues. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the guard thinks, okay, it's a normal, typical Christian letter. And then Paul lets loose. He doesn't stop. He runs out of breath. He goes on and on and on. He begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And he doesn't stop. He goes on for 11 more verses, and the guard who's attached to him begins to think, maybe Paul is not chained to me. Maybe I'm chained to Paul. Maybe I'm stuck here with this guy who is belting out praise to the Lord that he believes in. And Paul is going to describe the content of that blessing. But before he gets there, he's going to say one more thing. We can read this in verse 11 through 14, how he ends his section. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul is describing that if you have the Spirit, you know it is the fact that you belong to God and these blessings belong to you. They're the things that are secured for you in the Spirit. And he calls the Spirit a seal, a seal. 
Back in Paul's days, he's writing this letter, a seal was a thing that people carried around with them. It was made of like hard-baked clay or hard stone or precious stone, and they would roll it on softer things like wax, and it would have a bunch of symbols on it so people would know that the thing that you sealed belonged to you. Wealthy people did that. They would walk around and they would seal things that were valuable to them, things that belonged to them. We do it today. We brand cows. I don't brand cows. Is this how you brand a cow? I don't know. I don't brand cows, but I assume it's something like this. Also, like in my office, most of my books have the words Michael Nazarian on them. (laughs) Remind him that all things are held in common according to Acts 2. Paul's saying this, you belong to God, you belong to God, and he describes the people who belong to God, the ones who hear the gospel, the ones who respond to the gospel, the ones who are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and he's like, if that's you, if that's you, I've got good news, there are some good blessings that God has procured through us through Jesus and secured in the Holy Spirit, and he describes to us what they are in the middle section of this praise, threefold, he chose us. He chose us. Second, he redeems us. He redeems us. And thirdly, he reconciles everything. God chose us. God redeems us. God reconciles everything. He will reconcile everything. Okay, read with me verses four through six again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul begins, he chose us, he chose us. He is in a house in Rome, chained to a guard, awaiting execution, the execu- or, sorry, awaiting trial that we think will lead to his execution. By all accounts, he isn't free, but his heart in the Lord is free. And it races all the way back before anything happened at all. He's saying, before I was in this house, before the empire that put me in this house existed, before there was any civilization, before there was agriculture, before there were animals and trees and water, before stars blinked into existence at the word of God, way, 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 way back then, God chose me. God chose me. My name, my name was on the heart of God. And we hear that as a blessing. We're like, yes, we want that. We want that. But for some of us, it seems kind of disconcerting. It's the doctrine we call election or predestination. It's helpful for us to think about this doctrine the way that Paul does, to allow him to describe it to us, to allow him to talk about it the way he wants to talk about it. Why is it such a profound blessing? Why can Paul say this is an immense thing that God has done for us? It's because this doctrine, it preserves something really important. That our God is a God of action and a God of initiative. Our God is a God of action and initiative. How about the story of Abraham? You've heard of Abraham? Mm. I feel like more. There we go. Get worried. Abraham. Abraham is out in Ur. And here's how the story does not go. Abraham's not out in the desert. Looking around at all this stuff and thinking, man... Things have gone pretty bad. We had the flood. We had 
Tower of Babel, there's a lot of war and famine, things are not doing really well. And he's like, I'm going to come up with a plan. I'm going to come up with a plan. I'm going to write a proposal, I'm going to get my resume together, and I'm going to approach God. Just kind of like, give him some ideas, right? He's like, God, I have this idea, um, I have this plan, maybe you would consider it. I think, um, if you'd be willing, you could, um, you could use me and my wife, Sarah, uh, here's my resume just in case, and you could give us a kid. I know we're old, but you could give us a kid, and maybe if you want to, you could turn that kid into a nation, call it Israel if you'd like, whatever you want to call it, it's fine, and from that nation, you could raise up a Messiah, let's say, and that Messiah could go on to save all who call on his name. That's not how the story goes. Abraham's out in the desert worshiping the gods of his father's. And God finds Abraham, chooses Abraham, and sends him. God acts. God takes the initiative. That's how the story goes. How about Moses? You've heard of Moses? Okay. Moses is raised in the Egyptian courts, but he's an Israelite. He comes to realize that his own people are oppressed by the Egyptians, and he decides to deal with it, which results in a murder. And he has to flee out to the desert to get away from the crime he committed because he tried to take things into his own hands and deal with the problem and he's out in the desert and you know what he's not doing out in the desert? He's not like doing plan B. He's like, next time, murder all of them. (laughs) He's not doing that. He's doing shepherd things. And then one day, God calls him by name and sends him back. Our God is a God of action. Our God is a God of initiative. How about David? You heard of King David. The first good king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, killed a giant. He says to God one day, and he actually does do this, God, you're a very good guy. You've been really good. You're like, you're like a really good guy. I'd like, to, I'd like to get you something. I'd like to build you a house, a permanent house, like a temple. We'll, we'll build you a temple. You've been wandering the desert in this tabernacle, this mobile tent thing. Let me get you a nice house. And God says, no, I'll build you a house. I will establish your kingdom, and it would be that kingdom that produces the one who saves all who call on his name. Our God is a God of action. Our God is a God of initiative. When Paul describes the Lord this way, he's saying God did this. God achieved this. God accomplished this so long ago before anything happened. It's comforting, and here's why. There was no empire that could have risen or fallen. There was no king come to power, no nation state, no war, no famine, no sickness, no competing worldview, no sin in your former life that could have led astray God's plan to save you. He chose you way, way back then. If you were a believer, your name was on his heart way, way before anything happened. What did he choose us for? What did he choose us for? Adoption. Adoption. Now, adoption's a beautiful thing today. You may have been adopted, you may have adopted, you may know someone who's adopted, and today, typically, adoption is really young children or infants. But back when Paul is writing, people would also adopt people in their 20s and 30s. I don't imagine it'd be easy for me to get someone to adopt me. Like, I'm 30 years old, I'm nearsighted, I don't handle losing Monopoly well. You guys, you guys interested? <laughs> back then, you would adopt people who were much older and you would do it for a particular reason. If you had some sort of family business or estate, but you didn't have sons or you didn't have reliable sons, you could adopt someone to be your legal son. 
And that person would take on all the privileges of being in that family and all the responsibilities of being in that family. And by all accounts was the son that you never had. And this guy would just manage everything when you passed away. Now, this happened for all different types of people. If you owned a vineyard, you could adopt a son, and that son would come in and he would do vineyard sorts of things, right? If you were the emperor of the entire Roman Empire, you could adopt a son who would then become the next emperor of the entire Roman Empire. That happened. People, people would adopt people to like, participate in their family's business, to be like their family. Today, identity is usually a matter of what we do right? I say, what's your name? And you say, my name is whatever. And I say, what do you do? (laughs) Immediately, that's the first thing I do. But back when Paul is writing, when Jesus is alive in the first century, the way you were identified is who your father was, who your father was. So if your father was a fisherman, you were a fisherman, very, very likely a fisherman. If your father was a carpenter, you were very, very likely a carpenter. And then the New Testament plays with this idea, this really, really foundational concept of first century life in all kinds of ways. Jesus says to those Jewish leaders who oppose him, your father is the devil because you act like him. You are meant to act like the family that you are adopted into. You are meant to act like the family that you are adopted into. It says that he chose us before the foundations of the world that we might be holy and blameless before him. We are meant to act like the family that we are adopted into. Now, in one sense, we're holy and blameless because Jesus has justified us through his death on the cross. But in another sense, (laughs) we are not very holy or blameless. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. In this sense, God is faithful God is faithful, as Zach said last week, to train us, to discipline us. The theological word we use is to sanctify us. God is faithful to do that as well. So Paul is describing all the things that God has done, right? He's in this house, he's in Rome, he's chained to a guard, he's talking to an amanuensis, and he's getting excited because he's in the middle of praise, he's unloading the contents of his heart, and he's like, God chose us, God adopted us, God makes us blameless and holy, and why did he do these things? Because he loves us, and he's getting animated, and his hands are in the air, and the guard's getting pulled around, (laughs) worried worried about what this guy's going to do. He's describing the reason that God did these things because he loves us. Like, Why does he love us? Does he love us because we're good? No, because he loved us and chose us before we could do anything at all. How about the place we were born into? No, because he chose us before that place even existed. How about when we were born? No, because he chose us before anything happened at all. We say, in whom did God choose us? There is no greater name than the name of Jesus Christ. He chose us. He redeems us. He redeems us. We can read this starting in verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And immediately Paul begins to talk about something historical because Christianity is a historical religion. 
His heart has raced back to before anything happened at all. It shoots forwards thousands of years. His feet get planted on the ground at the cross. And he begins to talk about the cross. And he uses the word redemption. Which for most people today, redemption is just like church talk. It's not a word that's meaningful outside of church for most people. We redeem coupons, right? But redemption has a really particular meaning. It has many years that have this particular meaning. When Paul uses this word, he's using a word that's associated with the idea of ransom for a slave. He's talking about redeeming a slave. Now you could become a slave a number of ways in the Roman Empire. We find out if you do research that nearly a third of human beings that lived inside the bounds of the Roman Empire at the time of Paul and the time of Jesus were slaves. A third. One in three. You could become a slave if you were conquered in battle. Julius Caesar would fund his campaigns by selling the slaves he was about to conquer. That's how confident he was. You could become a slave by breaking the law, but very commonly you would become a slave by going into debt and being unable to pay that debt. So you would sell your very self into slavery to pay that debt. But then someone else, a brother or a friend, could find out about your predicament, could show up to the village or the city in which you were enslaved, could take the money that you owed for your own self, could pay it to the pagan temple and transfer you from slavery to whomever bought you to being a slave of the local pagan deity. That was the word Paul was using. And when people read this and when they hear this, they go, oh, I see, I see. Paul's saying we were a slave to something. Jesus tells us what it was we were a slave to. We can read this in John 8. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We're reminded we were a slave to a master that would kill us, would run us into the ground. But then we hear, by the blood of Jesus, in his blood, we find redemption. Paul is describing a transaction. He's saying, you owed something. You owed something. You owed something to a slave master. You owed something, but the ransom was paid at the cross when Jesus dies for your sins. You've heard that before. He pays that debt. He says, for the forgiveness of trespasses. And forgiveness is this idea. The wrath is bearing down on those who have sinned. Those who have sinned against humankind, but more appropriately, those who have sinned against God. Those who have been unrighteous. The wrath is bearing down on them. But what happens in this moment at the cross is that wrath is then bent towards Jesus and not poured out on us. The idea of forgiveness holds the connotation of wrath being poured out on someone else, on Jesus. Paul's describing the gospel here. You may have been here like two weeks ago when I basically preached just on this. I'll repeat it, right, because the Bible repeats it. It matters. It matters. Paul is saying he chose us way, way, way back then. He chose us before anything happened, knowing, knowing that it would lead to the cross. Knowing that it would lead to the cross. Knowing that it would lead to the death of the Son. Where sins are forgiven, where debt is paid. Paul's saying he blessed us way back then. And then he stops at the cross, at the turning point of all of history. And he says, here, here, he blesses us. In whom do we have redemption and forgiveness of sins? There is no greater name in the name of Jesus Christ. There is no greater name. Thirdly, he reconciles, or he will reconcile, everything. 
He will reconcile everything. We can read this in the following verses, starting in 8. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now, this is a long passage, <laughs> and each service as I've read the passage and kind of looked out, I can see myself slowly like kind of losing people at the beginning. Like I begin, it's like, oh, the Bible, it's good. And as I go through all these phrases, people are kind of like slowly just drifting off. And it gets more confusing here, but stay with me. He says words like mystery and fullness of time, and that might sound confusing, but what does mystery mean? For us, mystery refers to like CSI, it refers to Sherlock Holmes, it refers to a puzzle, a puzzle that needs solving, but that's not what mystery means in the New Testament. It refers to this, something that was partially hidden that's now been revealed, something that was obscured that's now been exposed. It's the idea of the curtain between human affairs and divine purpose being pulled back so we can see what it is that God has planned. So Paul's saying this, you have a future that you can be certain of, that you can know, because God in his wisdom has chosen to reveal it to you. You know what is going to happen. Christians know the end of the story. Those who believe knows what their Lord will accomplish. Why is that important? Two reasons. Two reasons. The first is meaning and purpose. Meaning and purpose. Every heart desires to belong somewhere. Every heart desires to belong somewhere. But if you don't believe in God, if you don't buy the story of Jesus, if you don't think the Bible is true, if all that exists is the material world, purpose and meaning are like a vapor that you can't get your hands around. There are people who wake up in the morning and their stomach hurts because there's no purpose. Some of you lived in that world and you know what I'm talking about. Some of you might be there right now and you know what I'm talking about. There's a philosopher who lived in that world, that lived in the world that he believed only the material world, only physical things existed. His name is Bertrand Russell and he says this, the man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that all the labors of all the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction and the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. <laughs> like, oh, oh man. Some of you are sad. Some of you don't know what that meant. It's okay. It's okay. I'm going to tell you what it means. He's saying this. If the material world is all that exists, if there's no hope of a certain future, if there's no God, if Jesus didn't do the things he said he did, if he wasn't who he said he was, then all we have to look forward to as a species is the slow, dark, gut-wrenching, meaningless heat death of the universe. The universe expands. The stars float away from each other. 
They lose their heat and they die in darkness. And nothing that happened mattered. And a person who stands on the precipice of this notion, a person who stands looking into this abyss, a person who maybe thinks this is true, stares out into a universe that he believes is going to die, and he says, what is the point? What is the point? But then in a house in Rome, chained to a guard, speaking to his amanuenses, as he praises the Lord for the blessings that have been given to him, he says, Jesus is the point. He says, you have purpose in Jesus, you have meaning in Jesus, you have a certain future in Jesus. Nothing that happens doesn't matter. It all matters, it will all come together. And the one who we claim is our Lord. You don't have to wake up in the morning with a hurting stomach feeling like there isn't a point. There's a point and there's a future and it's certain. That's why Paul is praising his Lord. But it's more than that. It's more than that. It's not just meaning, it's not just purpose. It's also hope. It's also hope. We live in a world that's at war, figuratively and literally. I'm sure everyone here has had bad things happen to them. I assume, right? Okay. And we know the world at large has bad things happen to it. There's disease and there's famine and there's oppression. There's all kinds of bad things. And that happens. There's stuff going on that's not okay because we live in a very particular time in history. I'm going to use a, a big theological term because I want you to get your money's worth. And, and maybe you've heard this term, inaugurated eschatology. And some of you are like, nope. Okay, let me try again. The already, not yet. A little, a little bit more. Okay, well, I'll try again. The beginning of the end. Okay, we live in a time where something has begun but has not yet come to its fullest realization. An example is World War II and D-Day. On D-Day, the American forces storm the beaches of Normandy, and they win the day. And at that moment, the war was pretty much won, meaning it was just a, a waiting game. They would continue to fight, but eventually the Germans were going to surrender. The Allied forces were going to win the war. Blood was still spilt. People still died. Bombs were still dropped. However, at that moment, people knew what was going to happen. We know this. At the cross, God acquires a victory. God wins a victory. However, Jesus' current reign is not uncontested. That is, human beings contest the reign of Jesus. Spiritual forces, as we'll learn later in this letter, contest the reign of Jesus. Paul is saying all things will be brought together under him. And you have this word, this like long word in Greek. It's translated different ways. I have it translated in the version I have, unite all things under him. You might have draw all things together. You might have sum everything together. You might have um, pull all things together. Different ways to translate this. The idea is this. Everything is drawn together and pulled together under the reign of Christ. What Paul is saying is that right now I realize bad things still happen. He's like, I'm chained to a guy. He's actually chained to me. Bad things are happening to this guy, right? (laughs) Actually, good things are happening, right? because he's hearing the blessings that Paul's so excited about. But there'll be a day, there will be a day when all these bad things don't happen anymore, including human sin. We live in this time in between times. Now you might be like, what does that mean for me personally? How does that affect my personal life? Well, here's an example. 
If you are a believer, if you've called on the name of Jesus, sin no longer has the power to permanently kill you, but it's still present in your life. Your body may get sick still, but you can be healed in the end. You're still going to die, but you're going to rise. We live in this time in between times. Paul's saying, you can look forward though. You can look forward though to this future where all the things that plague us now are gone. Sickness is gone. Death is gone. Oppression is gone. Marginalization is gone. All the things that make us like sad and frustrated and feel lonely and feel like the world is not okay, they're all going to be dealt with and drawn together under the name of Jesus. He's saying all of time, both beginning and end, all of space, both heaven and earth, is draped over the figure of Jesus and everything finds its resolution and reconciling in him. Everything will be drawn together. He's saying you have hope. He's saying, and you may have heard this before, in the messiness of life, there is hope. Meaning and hope. However, these verses about the future, they come right after the verses about the cross. We hear about all things being summed together in Jesus, under the name of Jesus. But we hear that right after we hear about redemption through his blood. And that's to remind us that the victory, the resolution, the final moment when everything is drawn together and all things are made new in the name of Jesus Christ is only possible because of the victory that happened at the cross. We think of the brutal execution of Jesus. We think of the nails and the thorns and the whip and all that stuff, the spear. And we're to be reminded of this. In the future, everything is drawn together under the name of Jesus because at the cross, Jesus is torn apart. In the future, everything will be given new life and blessed because at the cross, Jesus was killed and cursed. But we know the second half of the story. Jesus is raised, amen? Jesus is raised. Jesus is vindicated by the Father. Jesus is brought back to life and we get a taste of the heaven that we see at the end. We have a sure hope. That is why Paul is praising his God. In whom are all things reconciled? There is no greater name than the name of Jesus Christ. There is no greater name than the name of Jesus Christ. I hope, I hope that guard is listening. I hope he's hearing this guy pour out his heart in accurate and precise worship. I hope he's hearing about the God whom he can call on. And I hope if you're here right now, you're listening also. There's a Lord that you can have if you don't have him. There are blessings that you can have if you've not called on the name of that Lord. There is no greater name. There is no greater name. There is no greater name. That's the heartbeat of this passage. That's the heartbeat of the entire letter to the Ephesians. That is the heartbeat of all history. No greater name than the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessings that we have in your Son. We thank you that before anything happened, you chose us in him. We thank you that presently you've redeemed us in him. And we thank you that all things will be reconciled under his name. 
if everyone could just keep their head bowed for a moment, I, I, I want to um, just, just extend an offer. In this room with Paul, there's this guard who's not a believer who's listening to the things that he has to say. Who's listening to this profound moment of praise, the authenticity in Paul's heart. He's hearing of the blessings that Paul is utterly convinced that he has. That in all actual reality, Paul does have. And maybe there are those of you who are here that, that, that are, you're, you're hearing. You're hearing these blessings. You're hearing about Jesus for the first time in a real substantial way. You're hearing of what God has accomplished in his son and what he will continue to accomplish. And you realize that you need that. You realize when you hear the word forgiveness for trespasses that you've trespassed, that you've sinned, that there's a debt, that there's something that you're a slave to. And you want to be emancipated. You want to be made free. If that's you, if that's you, I want you to respond. One other group. You heard about the family of God, about adoption, and about how you are supposed to act like the family that you are adopted into. And you realize you don't act like that family. Either of these groups can have hearts that turn toward God, turn towards his son right now this morning. Well, everyone else's head is bowed. If that's you, just raise your hand and show me, and we'll pray together. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand in the back. I see that hand right there. The Bible says this, do not be afraid of the one who can destroy the body. Be afraid of the one who can destroy the body and the soul. One more moment. If that's you, raise your hand and we'll pray together. I see that hand in the back. Okay, last chance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what it is that you accomplished in Jesus. We thank you that you deemed wise to do that way, way before anything happened. We thank you that even though you knew a result in the death of the Son, you chose, you chose the names of people whom will need redemption. I pray that you give us new hearts. We repent of our sins, Father. We turn towards you. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.